We're in a series on the hard sayings of Jesus, difficult teachings that either in Scripture, sometimes the people said back to him, this is a hard saying, uh, doesn't make sense, they were confused, or maybe it was very plain and uh, it was just hard to apply, uh, which then made them think maybe he didn't really mean that what he said, because who could really mean that, right? Who could expect that from us? And so different sayings kind of take on different um, tones, depending on the context of what Jesus was teaching. Last week, Jesus said we needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood to receive eternal life. Um, And so we looked at that. Did Jesus really mean his literal flesh and blood uh, to be eaten? No, he didn't. He, in that very passage, pointed us to the truth of uh, eating and drinking was equal to belief, and he talked about himself being the bread of life. And so as he's pointing, making this connection to you need physical earthly bread to sustain you, uh, pointing to himself as the bread of life for eternity, you need me to sustain you for eternity. And so believing and trusting in me uh, is what he was saying when he says to eat uh, his flesh and drink his blood. Um, because everywhere else in Scripture we see it's not works that bring us eternal life. So how could doing something lead to eternal life? And so um, that was in the passage last week as well. To do the works of the Father is to believe in him who the Father sent. Uh, Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, as opposed to last week we read, I think, almost an entire chapter of John, or at least a big chunk of John 6. Today is just three verses. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sometimes referred to as the scariest passage in Scripture. Uh, I don't know enough, I don't think, to make it scary enough for us, Uh, but I hope to uh, make it plain to us this morning what Jesus is pointing us to in this passage. Um, This intimidating little passage, it's the the third set of twos. If you look, um, the verses before, the verses that kind of follow, he's speaking uh, of these pairs. He keeps kind of comparing and contrasting different things. In verses 13 and 14, uh, he mentions two gates, one narrow, one wide, to contrast the paths of the faithful with the unrighteous. In verses 15 through 20, he compares two kinds of trees, the healthy and the diseased, by stating that healthy trees produce good fruit and diseased trees produce bad fruit. This brings us to verses 21 through 23, which we just read, where Jesus compares the confession of false disciples with his confession toward them. These verses are followed by Jesus presenting another set of two, two foundations, one rock and the other sand, to illustrate the difference between those who hear and obey and those who do not. But here in the tale of two confessions, what we're looking at is not so much a case of those who are aware of their disobedience and deceit, but those who seem to be deceived by their own deceit. It's a matter of living or telling a lie so consistently that you begin to believe it yourself. Look at the confession of these so-called workers of lawlessness. They say, Lord, Lord. Uh, Now, this structure is worth noting, as R.C. Sproul pointed out in his commentary on the book of Matthew, that there's a sense of intimacy in Hebrew culture or writing 
connected to this double address, to double up, Lord, Lord. We find it in Genesis 22, when Abraham has bound Isaac to the altar and is trusting that God will provide a sacrifice. He raises the knife, and God calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham, doubling up the address. Later in the history of God's people, Jacob is hesitant to relocate to Egypt, where Joseph has found favor and can provide for the family. But Jacob doesn't want to leave, right, the place that he believes is where God has led them and where he is to be and where his family has been. God appears to Jacob and calls to him, Jacob, Jacob, telling him not to fear. In Exodus, when Moses is living a new life far from the troubles in Egypt that he had stirred up for himself, God has a mission for him and comes to him in the form of a burning bush. And he calls out from the burning bush, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, begins to commission him. Again, when God calls to Samuel to commission him, he calls on him multiple times, but the final time he doubles up the address in 1 Samuel 3.10, Samuel, Samuel. In 2 Kings 2, it's Elisha calling out to his mentor, Elijah, when the latter is taken up into heaven. My father, my father, he's referring to his mentor, father in the faith, Elijah. In the New Testament, when Martha complains about Mary not working, Jesus calls to her, Martha, Martha. He also uses this intimate double address when lamenting Jerusalem's sin in Luke 13. When Jesus reveals to Peter that he will deny Jesus publicly, he looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, a sense of affection, even amidst this tragic foretelling. And again, when Jesus is on the cross, experiencing the wrath of God in the place of sinners, he calls to the Father, my God, my God. And then the conversion of a terrorist against the church who would go on to become a champion of the gospel when on the road to Damascus, God sends a blinding light and calls to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the double address is a marked structure for communicating intimacy and affection. The fact that Jesus uses it here from those who are condemned is kind of striking. Jesus is saying then that some will be so convinced that they have affection for and intimacy with him that they believe they will enter the kingdom of heaven for all eternity with him but that they are deceived based on Jesus' response. Because it's not whether or not we know, quote-unquote, Jesus, but whether or not Jesus knows us. Do we know Jesus, or does Jesus know us? Obviously, Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. This is not a case of, I'm not familiar, who, what, you know, can you tell me your name again? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Not, hey, we haven't met. This is a case of, I have not called you my own. You are not a child of God, a co-heir with Christ by faith to the kingdom of God. I heard this great illustration from a young life higher up, I don't know, this thing we went to with, with Brett and Marie, and uh, I wish I remembered all the details, but the illustration was, was so good. If I had one to apply to my own life, I would, but I don't know any famous people like this. So uh, basically this guy who was speaking was a super fan of the band The Eagles, um, so when he was growing up, it was kind of like the, the height, you know, the rise of the Eagles kind of paralleled his, um, his growth, right, from adolescence to adulthood, whatever. So it was like a very influential band in his life. And when I say super fan, I mean, he was like rattling off all these stats, like, yeah, when they were in high school, before they were the Eagles, they were called this, and Don Henley used to drive this kind of car, and this is the high school they went to, and they're all, you know, he had like all these really, really minute details, but they didn't know him, obviously, from Adam. He's just a super fan. He wasn't getting backstage passes for knowing what Don Henley's first car was. Then one day, as uh, later in life, like as adults uh, into adulthood, 
uh, the guy's sister goes out on a blind date with one of the members of the band. Uh, and they end up getting married. And so I'm fast-forwarding the story a little bit. But once that happened, once they got married, now this guy is brother-in-law to somebody who's in the Eagles. He starts getting hooked up, like backstage passes to all these concerts. He's even like the wedding reception. He was naming all these like superstars and bands that were like at the reception or at the wedding that he's like, I can't believe I'm in the same room with these people. He could go anywhere that he could not go before. And why? Because he knew about the Eagles? No. Because a member of the band knew him. If he was ever questioned about why he was in these VIP areas, he didn't rely on, I know all about the Eagles. Let me tell you what they were called when they were in high school before they were called the Eagles. That's not why he was allowed to stay in these places. He was allowed to stay in these places because the member of the band could point to him and say, oh, he's with me. And that's all it took. He was covered. This is what Jesus is saying about the last day. It doesn't matter if we say, we know Jesus. We've followed Jesus. What matters is if Jesus says, there with me. If there's a real relationship there, not a delusional, I know Jesus because I check the Christian box when I'm ever asked what my religion is, not I'm a Christian just because I know I'm not whatever the other options are, but are we really in a relationship by faith with Christ? Are we in Christ, sealed in Christ? Have we been made new by Christ? Is it no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, as Paul would say in Galatians? Or could we say my life is hidden with Christ in God, as Paul writes in Colossians? See, we must die to self and obey Jesus by faith. Our obedience is not the fruit of our salvation. I'm sorry, our obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not a substitute for our salvation. We don't point to our works and say, this is why I'm saved. This is how I know Jesus. We point to our works and say, this is my love response to being made new by Jesus. And by faith, I'm now able to please him by these works. But it's not to repay him or earn our salvation. Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we're truly obedient to God in a sense that pleases him, it must be in faith. Not just works done with Jesus' name slapped on it, which is what we appear to see here in Matthew 7. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, if we love God, we'll be known by him. Jesus said, if we love him, we'll obey his commands. So our obedience and love and faith is all tied together. It's love in action, right? Born by faith. And that's why God can say, they're with me. I know them. The scariest thing about this passage, I think, in Matthew 7, is that the workers of lawlessness seem to believe that they're in. They're surprised when he tells them that he doesn't know them. So there's some kind of self-delusion or self-deceit here that we need to be really uh, aware of that we don't fall into. When it comes to the wide gate and the path and the bad tree and the bad fruit, the unrighteous appear to be aware of their wickedness, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing, as Jesus mentions in verse 15, it, it knows it's a wolf dressed up as a sheep. It's not convinced that it's a sheep. But these people here in verses 21 through 23, they come across as truly genuine in their surprise. They even argue their case. Didn't we do this and didn't we do that in your name? And it's like big time stuff. Didn't we heal? Didn't we prophesy in your name? It brings to mind Cain and Abel who, who both brought offerings to the Lord in Genesis 4. 
And yet Cain's was not regarded by the Lord. The text implies that Abel brought his first and best, which indicates a sacrifice of faith. By faith, we trust that we can give up our first and best because God will provide something better or God will provide what we need regardless of what we give up. It didn't matter that one, when I was growing up, I always thought, oh, it's because he brought plants instead of animals, but I don't believe that's the case. We see in Scripture there's other places where plant sacrifices were, were brought or offerings were, were brought. I guess, you know, sacrifice plants. But um, ah, um, There are plant offerings that God receives in Scripture. And so I don't think it's a matter of well, he brought animals and he brought plants. No, God knew that one dealt with animals and one dealt with plants. I think it's a matter of one brought their first and best, and one did not. And yet he still thought he should have been regarded as a faithful uh, offering to the Lord. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. So for Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, pointing back to that incident of Cain and Abel, it says Abel sacrificed in faith, which kind of implies Cain did not bring his offering in faith. And yet Cain grows angry at God's response as if he really believed he had offered something pleasing and acceptable. So how do we avoid this delusion? How do we avoid the deceit that we are Lord, Lord, intimate with Jesus, but yet he could say, I never knew you. And I would say we do it like this. We cannot redefine sacrifice, intimacy, and obedience We cannot redefine sacrifice, intimacy, and obedience. In the case of the lawless in Jesus' story, and with Cain in Genesis 4, the wicked don't seem to be living by God's definitions of sacrifice, intimacy, and obedience. But they think they are. At the heart of discipleship, truly following Jesus is surrender. Surrendering our first and best in sacrifice. Surrendering ourselves in vulnerability and transparency if we really want true intimacy, surrendering our hopes, dreams, and aspirations in obedience, that our will is taking a back seat to the will of the Father, the will of God in our lives. If we try to wave the banner of Jesus over our personal campaigns of self-righteousness, we're not living surrendered in faith. If we try to claim Christ but attempt to keep portions of ourselves under our control and not under his lordship, we are not living surrendered in faith. If we try even to do good deeds and keep his commandments as a form of self-righteousness or absolution, we are not living surrendered in faith. A life surrendered in faith has been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit and listens and obeys out of love for God. John Stott boils this passage and the following verses down to this simple concept. It doesn't matter what you say if you don't mean it, and it doesn't matter what you hear if you don't do it. So in this passage, today's text, he's saying, you can say, Lord, Lord, but if you don't mean it, it doesn't matter. And then he's referring to the building your house on the sand or the rock as if you don't do what God has told you, then it's not obedience. You're just hearing we see this in our kids all the time, saying things they don't really mean. If we're saying, okay, you need to say you're sorry, sorry. You know, it's this mocking kind of like, it's not a real sorry. Or not obeying what they've been taught. But God sees this in us all the time as well. It's easier for us to see it in other people. 
It's hard to see it in our own lives. We try to redefine sacrifice, acting like things cost us more than they do. We try to redefine intimacy, expecting full disclosure from everyone else. Oh, you can trust me and tell me all of your deepest, darkest secrets, but we're not going to share all of ourselves with you. That'd be crazy, right? We try to redefine obedience, doing as much as we want to do, maybe just a skosh more to say, that's obedience. I really laid it all out there. Except all of these things are defined by God, not us. We don't get to define sacrifice or intimacy or obedience. God does. I also want to point out, despite how uncomfortable this passage might make us, that we can take a little bit of comfort in Jesus' claim of, I never knew you. No one wants to hear that, but it also rules out the idea of Jesus knowing us at one time and then claiming to not know us. And what I'm getting at here is that it's not like you can be saved and then mess up and then on judgment day, Jesus say, I don't know you anymore. So if there's any comfort, even in just taking what Jesus is saying by looking at what he means by what he's not saying, he says, I never knew you, meaning you were never a child of God. You were never saved by faith. And so that comforts me at least. So it's not like, oh man, I, I believe I was a Christian at one point, but Man, now I just don't know. And Jesus might stand and say, I don't know you anymore. Jesus will never say, I don't know you anymore. He only says, I know you or I never knew you. So take comfort that by faith you are saved forever, one time for all time, sealed for eternity. Salvation that was secured by the work of Jesus, not us. Jesus who is the epitome of sacrifice, intimacy, and obedience. God set this precedent with his people back in the Old Testament as a God who would know and be known, a God who would introduce himself to his people by name, telling Moses, I am who I am. This is the name Yahweh that we see throughout the Old Testament. And loving God to be known by him makes the difference between calling on him by name and simply doing works in his name, as the people in Matthew 7 seem to do. We did this in your name. We did this in your name. Here in Matthew 7, some say, Lord, Lord, when addressing Jesus. This Lord, the word they're using, Lord, is translated to master or authority. Just kind of what you would think. Lord, kind of boss of my life, whatever. You know, it's this, it's this authority, this influence that we have. And so they double it up. So a sense of affection, but still, Lord, Lord. And Jesus does want to be known as Lord of our lives by this definition of Lord. And they claim to have done works in his name. But neither of these really imply an intimate relationship. Now consider our call to worship, Psalm 8. It begins with, O Lord, our Lord. But the first Lord is all caps in my Bible. It probably is in yours too. This is because the all caps Lord is the word Yahweh. If you see Lord in all caps, it's Yahweh. It's the name of God by which he revealed himself to us. The one which he introduced himself by in Exodus. So David in Psalm 8 is saying, O Yahweh, I am who I am, our master, our authority. So he says, O Lord, our Lord, but it's two different words. O Lord, by name Yahweh, who has revealed himself to us, you are 
our authority. You are the boss of our lives. It's not just the Lord boss of our lives by which he's doubling up like in Matthew 7. It's God whose name I know and who knows me. You are the boss of our lives. And he goes on to praise the name of God. The psalm oozes relationship. It oozes intimacy. It oozes knowing and being known. There's true intimacy between God and his people. Not simply a Lord, Lord, didn't we do works in your name, but Yahweh, God who we know and who knows us, we praise the majesty of your name. This, this sacrificial, intimate, and obedient relationship with God by faith is what separates us from the workers of lawlessness who will be disavowed on the last day. May it be so that our Lord, Lord, is met with, well done, my good and faithful servant, because we love and know Jesus and have been called out by him to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, that you would introduce yourself by name to us. It shouts a desire for relationship. You present yourself to us in a sense of, I want to know you and be known by you. God, may we not be deceived like the workers of lawlessness in Matthew 7. God, I pray that uh, even if we are deceived, that it's uh, maybe we, we just have redefined intimacy and obedience and these things we've talked about, but it's not a sense of, oh, oh man, I thought I was a believer and I'm not. If that is the case, reveal it to us, Lord. But I say that not to scare anyone. I want, don't want anyone who knows you and is known by you, who's been called by you and who's been uh, drawn to you by faith, that, that they would doubt their salvation. That's not what I'm trying to create with this message. But God, there is a sense by which those who are redeemed, those who are sealed for all eternity, can still walk in disobedience, can still walk in this delusion of intimacy. Not that we will be disavowed in the final day, but that we're not living the lives you've called us to. So God, my prayer is, is twofold, God, that, that if there are any who do realize I'm, I'm Matthew 7, I'm a worker of lawlessness, I, I, I think I've done things in Jesus' name, I think I can say Lord, Lord, and, and call on the name of Jesus, but it, it's not my personal, relational God in whom I have surrendered by faith. Help us to see that in our own lives. No one can answer this for anyone else, God, it's just a person and their relationship with you, what they know to be true in their heart of hearts. God, I pray for those who are redeemed, those who are believers, that we would walk in true intimacy and sacrifice and obedience. That we would not try to redefine these standards for ourselves, that we wouldn't say, well, I've given enough. It, it hurt me to give that when you've called us to give more. Or to say, I've, I've opened up myself enough to you, God, when you've called us to more. You know our deepest thoughts anyway, God. 
you know, every corner of our heart and mind. And God, that we would truly be obedient to what you've called us to, not that we would set a standard for ourselves short of what you have called us to. May we be found faithful. And Jesus, may we look at a passage like this and these intimidating words that said, some may say, Lord, Lord, and you will say, I never knew you. God, may it uh, be a wake-up call to us that the life that you've called us to in yourself is to be genuine and relational and authentic. And that's the same eternal life that we present to others as well who are far from you, that we wouldn't present a watered-down Christianity in name only, but a life of obedience, sacrifice, and intimacy. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.